forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, director, and someone who forgot to think of a third thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and co-host of the Sundance TV show, Make This Movie. Uh, Yeah, so Allison and I are co-hosting a YouTube show for Sundance TV called Make This Movie on their YouTube channel. Uh, A few episodes are out already. It has been a total blast. I've had a lot of fun. I get to nerd out because each episode we have guests on and with the guests, we do this like creative brainstorm where we come up with an original movie idea from like start to finish um, in what you see as only 10 minutes, but in our lives is actually about only an hour, which is still pretty (laughs) impressive. (laughs) It's been super fun. We like have these guests on and we brainstorm uh, a completely new movie on the fly and uh, it, based on a genre. So we've done like superhero movie and um, a, a starring vehicle for Zendaya and a horror movie. Uh, and I, I mean, Allison and I, we we encompass different spectrums of the movie nerd spectrum. <laughs> uh, but Do we I are, even encompass any? You Well, you're like a screenwriter. Oh, yeah. I know. I know a lot about story. So I'm yeah. sort of in charge of making sure that it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. will feel satisfying. <laughs> yeah. And I uh, throw out wild pitches that sometimes work and yes. sometimes don't work. Sometimes no. <laughs> but we just wanted to let you guys know that we are now back on YouTube weekly doing this really fun show. Um, but this is, isn't that show. This is just between us. A variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. Also, if you want to see us on YouTube, we're posting clips from this show uh, of us recording the podcast. We're posting clips of that on the Just Between Us YouTube channel. So youtube.com slash Just Between Us show where you can see video of us recording this very podcast. It means I've had to start doing my hair for podcast I recording know, days. I know. What a I put- bummer. I put mascara on. Uh, Also, uh, we JBU has an Instagram at JBU podcast. I run it. It's very exciting over there. So uh, what else? Oh, you can't take an opportunity not to take credit for something. Of course. Uh, And then Allison has an Instagram called at emotional support lady. And then I have an Instagram called at Gabby Road. And then Allison has her own personal Instagram at Allison Raskin. Did I cover everything? I also have a Patreon now for, yes. yeah, I have a mental health focused Patreon for $5 a month. Um, it's a weekly blog and two original videos per month. Um, <gasps> plus you get access to an exclusive discord and it's, um, very exciting and cool and like a mental health community. And, um, I would love if you guys could join and support and it's been, it's been thrilling for me. We have got a great episode for you guys this week that's not exclusively about our own social media. I know. I promise, like, if you go back and listen to other episodes, if this is your first one, I'm so sorry, because if you go back and listen to other episodes, we have, like, heartfelt talks up top or whatever. But this this one, we're just promo. It's 2021. Hard promo. That's all we do. <laughs> um, we're going to be asking Jessica Gonzalez some tough questions about beekeeping and CBD. That's right, guys. The primatologist was amazing. You asked for more animal episodes. We got bees. <laughs> and 
And later we'll be discussing cultural identity. How do we define and view ourselves? What are the most salient aspects of our identity? But first, hit it! International question! International question! International question! Amy, United Kingdom. So Amy says, TLDR, how do you recognize who is toxic? I have no idea. (laughs) Hi, Allison and Gabby. I'm a longtime fan of you guys. So glad you're back. Been following you since the YouTube days. Now I'm 30. Yikes. I've grown out of a lot, but I haven't grown out of you guys. That said, I love your insight on my problem. That seems to be a theme in my life. I'll try to keep it short. I started a relationship with a woman over a year and a half ago now. I have never felt the typical passion butterflies head over heels feeling people describe in any relationship before, but I did and still do with her. That said, during lockdown, a lot came out about our relationship and knocked me off my feet and broke my heart. She was in a relationship with another person and still sleeping with her ex even after we had told each other we loved each other. I found Mm -hmm. out during lockdown by looking at her phone after I saw pictures from many people on there. She also continued to sex people up until a few months ago. Only when I had a massive breakdown did she say she would stop. We spoke at length and decided to stay together. I love her and it's what I wanted and I think I do trust her but I have a history of being manipulated and abused in relationships and I never see it until after it has ended despite other people warning me. I have seen a lot of red flags in her behavior but I also see all the kind beautiful good flags. I think I understand why she did the cheating. Older, wanted kids, wasn't sure about being with a woman despite being bisexual, trust issues. But I also feel like I'm loving her and grieving at the same time. It's like she broke my heart and then I fell in love all over again. I'm just looking for some insight, really. I really value you guys and the advice you give. I don't want to end our relationship, but because I've done so much work in counseling around recognizing gaslighting and controlling behavior, I also don't want to ignore my feelings. I don't know what the limit is. I'm starting to believe everyone has signs of being controlling and manipulative with them, including me. I have PTSD and a lot of issues surrounding this due to abuse in my life, and I want to make sure I take care care of myself now. Head over heels and confused, Amy. When it comes to recognizing toxic people, uh, I have no idea. I've let an immense amount of toxic people into my life. I used to have no filter for it. I have really suffered the consequences of that many times over. Something that stuck out to me is I'm starting to believe everyone has signs of being controlling and manipulative within them, including me, which I kind of think is valid. But I also think that you're turning your eye to yourself and not to uh, this person that you're with. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you're, you're doing so much work to like, to like recognize your own behaviors that it feels like you're not recognizing the behaviors in front of you. It's mental gymnastics, right? So that yeah. like the outcome can be what you want it to be without you betraying yourself, right? I- I'm going to butcher this and I'm still very much learning about it. But I just started my new quarter in school and one of my classes is trauma and diverse populations. And mm-hmm. I had my first class. And one of the most interesting things my professor said was that a lot of times people who have had a history of being abused um, and have a history of trauma, predators can recognize that in those 100%. people. 100%. And so that's why um, a lot of these people end up having multiple traumas, maybe multiple abusers. It tends to be a pattern in their life. And it's not your fault at all. It's it's like science. It's like predators recognize it in you. You are also just like, because of what your history is, you're more susceptible to it. Mm-hmm. So I think that it is really great that you are 
aware of your history and worried about your future. The question is now, are you willing to make that the tough decisions you need to make to protect yourself? It's hard because I understand that you love this person and you want to see the good, but everything you described to me is like so hurtful and disrespectful and and such a huge red flag and you're giving this person so much benefit of the doubt like you're like I understand why she did this thing you know I understand why she broke my heart you can give people the benefit of the doubt and completely understand why they behaved in the way they behaved and still not want them in your life you can forgive but I don't think that means you have to keep being with this person and I know that there's a lot of discourse about like can people change but like this person can change if in like a year they've done a lot of work on themselves and they I don't think they can change in the like two days since (laughs) they stopped doing this do you know what I mean Yeah. Well, I mean, there is no incentive for this person to change. Right. Because you're still together. Right. So, you know, obviously they hurt you and they probably feel bad that they hurt you. But it's not like, oh, they've hit rock bottom and realize that their behavior pushes people away because it it didn't push you away. You know, so Mal, my partner, uh, has uh, a history of uh, abusive partners. And Mal told me that every time that they met someone who created passionate butterflies in their stomach, they felt like, oh, that's a sign that this person is like for me and we're meant to be together and blah, blah, blah. And they said that they didn't feel that for me when they met me and they didn't feel that for me when we started dating. But now they recognize that those passion butterflies is adrenaline. It's fear. Mm-hmm. It's like it's the it's not healthy. It's the feeling of I must have this person. This person is going to slip through my fingers. They're they're chaotic. It's like a sign that the person is already kind of bad news. Like I feel like just because of not not even I mean maybe they are inherently but definitely bad news for you specifically because the feeling is adrenaline. It's it's like fear. It's like falling. It's like it's like getting punched, you know? So like it's not actually a positive feeling. And for Mal, it, it wasn't a feeling of um, a relationship that could work because they were coming at it from a place of like chasing that passion and chasing that fear. And then they said with me, they they worried a lot because they didn't have that. But they they ultimately figured out that that is healthier because it's actually like safety and security and Um, and like trust saying like, I've never felt this way before is in my opinion, actually another red flag. I mean, here's the thing is that like, in terms of like, how do I recognize toxic people? Ultimately entering into relationships with anybody is risk. And if I had asked anybody in my life, if they thought that me entering into a relationship with Jake would cause the biggest devastation and heartbreak of my entire life, no one would have said that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone supported my relationship. Everybody trusted him. We had a conversation with my parents in August when we were in Colorado about prenups. And my parents had always said that I needed to get a prenup. But in that conversation in August, my parents were like, you don't need to get a prenup with Jake. We trust Jake. And then yeah. come November, Jake has walked out on me with no explanation other than something is missing and has no intention of ever seeing or speaking to me ever again. So we can do everything that we want. 
you know, in our power to make smart decisions and to look at all the facts and, you know, and people will still hurt us, you know? Right, right, so right. So it's not like um, that, like, you are always to blame for picking the wrong person. No, no, no. But I do think that, especially with your history and honestly, anybody listening, like, we have to listen to those red flags and we have to see what is this person showing us as who they are, you know, and what they show us, we have to believe them. Also, you want to talk about like respect and caring. If you were in lockdown with this person and and during a deadly virus and she was in another relationship and still sleeping with someone else after you said you loved each other, she was putting literally putting your life at risk. And she only stopped with with all of this stuff after you had a breakdown and had to like force her and also any relationship I've ever been in where I felt the need to look at the person's phone toxic Mal has a journal that they leave everywhere I've never once opened it or looked at it Mm -hmm. because I trust them and I would never go through their phone I don't have a lock on my phone first time ever in a relationship I have no password on my phone the fact that you had to do that and that you flippantly included it in this thing as just like a thing and not as part of the red flags. I want to like pull back a little bit outside of just like this specific instance and like what are some red flags that somebody is toxic? Love bombing. Yeah. So love bombing we've talked about before, but that's when at the very beginning they're so into you. They've never felt like this before. They push the relationship forward really quickly. They Mm -hmm. say, I love you really quickly. They, you know, kiss your ass a lot. You're perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think another red flag is... What has their relationship been like with other people? Yeah. So if there's someone who constantly has falling out with other people, if everyone in their life has wronged them, if they, you know, are on terrible terms with like all of these people that used to be their friends, but it's all their fault. Do you know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. to me is a red Mm -hmm. flag. If all their exes are crazy. If you have to change your expectations of what a relationship is based around them, I think Mm -hmm. that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. I think that like, you know, you hear these people where they're like, well, like they just like don't like to text that much. So I love to text a lot, but like we don't text because they don't like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's like what what is the compromise? You know, like you want to both be doing things to like make each other feel comfortable. So if who is compromising? Yeah. Like if you're always meeting them where they are versus meeting in the middle or sometimes I'm even meeting you where you are. That's not a great thing. That's not a way you want to set up a dynamic for a relationship. You know, volatile behavior, uh, guilt tripping, um, mm-hmm. Not being able to apologize. I was in one relationship where I would ask in even like small instances, I would ask this person to stop doing something Mm -hmm. and they would just be like, no, or like wholesale ignore me. What kind of thing? Oh, my God. This is a whole fucking story. But basically, uh, they were doing something dangerous. They were walking close to they were walking along something that was dangerous. And I was like please stop. Like, mm-hmm. you're making me nervous. And they were like, you're being ridiculous. It was a place I had been before. So I was like, I know that that's dangerous. Like, please don't do this. And they kept doing it because I was so scared that they were going to get hurt. I had to like start crying and screaming to get them to get down from the place. Mm-hmm. And I did that for way longer than I thought I had to before they got down. Now, looking back, that is a huge red flag. You should not have to like 
go into massive breakdown mode in order for your partner to just trust you or to listen to your needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, does this person listen to you? <laughs> like, do right. they, do they, and so that gets into gaslighting, right? Like, do they respect your feelings? Do they respect your beliefs? Do they belittle you? Belittling is mm-hmm. like a huge red flag. Mm-hmm. Um, being condescending, I find to be a red flag, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's all like kind of like textbook stuff. Like, obviously, if you're not with that person and if someone asks you what are toxic behaviors, you can list them off. But the issue is that when it's a full person and like you said, there's all these good flags too. And you're also taking into account how much you do care about them and, and that you have building this life together and that your day-to-day mm-hmm. life is like filled with this other person. It's a lot harder to think rationally mm-hmm. and to also give the red flags the weight that they deserve. Mm-hmm. But again, you have to protect yourself. You have mm-hmm. to be your number one priority. And you have to have faith that you are strong enough to move forward without them and be happier without them. Yeah. And it's hard, especially in the quarantine situation, right? Because it's like, okay, if I break up with this person, who knows what my living situation is? I go from being Uh, with a partner 24 seven to probably being alone 24 seven, like Mm -hmm. it's a very big shift. Um, And so it can feel overwhelming. And so you sort of make excuses. Mm -hmm. But I think even just through the, the fact that you wrote this email, I think, you know, the answer. That's what I was going to say too. You know, and, and here's the thing. And you say this more than me, Gabby is like, sometimes people find their way back to each other. I think that there have not been repercussions for this person. So there's been no reason for them to really change their behavior other than to just placate you in the moment and saying that they will change it. I think that potentially breaking up or having a break or having space from that person, maybe will give them the time and the motivation to actually work through their stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And then who knows that maybe you do find your way back to each other and that's wonderful. And then it it will not be a toxic relationship, but there's been some major, major betrayals here. And I think that you maybe need the space away from them to figure out if that's the person that you want to partner up with for the rest of your life. Let us know what happens. We're very (sighs) invested in this and in you. And we know this is scary, but you got to prioritize yourself. If you want to submit your international questions so we can tell you things you don't want to hear, send it to <laughs> justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Jessica Gonzalez. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, our guest is Jessica Gonzalez. Jessica Gonzalez is the beekeeper and owner of Happy Organics, an apiary and wellness company. She makes products to help people with stress, anxiety, pain relief, and sleeplessness, and teaches people about the importance of honeybee conservation. I could not be more <laughs> could not be more excited right now. Hi, Jessica. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, this is truly like a celebrity because, like, I follow your Instagram. I think Melissa follows your Instagram. Instagram. Like it is, uh, this is huge for us at JBU. (laughs) Yeah. I'm excited to share what I know about bees and everything else you want to know too. I think that people have this general understanding that we need bees and it's bad that bees are dying, but people don't really understand the intricacies of why. Can you maybe explain that a bit? Right now I live in the central Valley of California. So in Merced and one of the biggest problems 
we have here is commercial beekeeping. And what that usually means is that the bees are exploited because they're just used for pollination and their well-being and their health isn't really thought of uh, necessarily. So, for example, with all the almond orchards here, a lot of bees are brought in from out of state. Most of them are brought in from out of state to just do almond pollination. And um, they usually bring in more than, than they need. So farmers get a good crop that year. Um, but what that usually means for the bees is that they're fighting for food. Um, they're usually left malnourished. Um, farmers usually spray, whether it's on that um, orchard or not, they're usually spraying chemicals. So the bees are exposed to the chemicals. Also, they're competing with all the local bees that we have here. So, you know, it's just like a big mess of like, not being able to properly provide good food for the bees because they're not um, given like a wide range of flowers, which they normally need for good health. And also they're overworked, you know, they're transported from out of state and that causes them a lot of stress. So it's not one thing necessarily, it's like all of these things coming together and creating this like health problem for them. And that exposes them to a lot of disease and it, you know, weakens their like immunity. So they're not able to like fend off these little mites that are really bad for them. And so eventually it just kind of snowballs and people call it colony collapse disorder, but it's not necessarily coming from one thing. It's like all of these things working together, acting together that ultimately leads to them dying. And so what I try to do differently is I grow a lot of different flowers, a lot of different food sources for them here. So they're a little bit healthier because just like us, they need a wide variety of uh, flowers. Like we need a wide variety of food to be healthy um, because that is their medicine and also their food. So I try to provide different flowers throughout the year and I make sure that they constantly have a source of food. That's so interesting that I would never have thought they would need multiple like flower sources. And so what does it mean for the environment if, if bees are extinct? Um, so right now we heavily rely on them for um, pollination of all of, of a lot of our food. I think it's like 80% of our food. Um, so what that would mean for us is we'd get a very limited variety, I guess. And, you know, it could ultimately to our like demise as like humans, you know. Cause... Are they throughout the world? Like, are they in every environment? From what I've seen, most other countries also rely heavily on honeybee pollination. Um, they're easiest to like move around and control and they live as a colony. A lot of other pollinators are like solo pollinators. So it's hard to get them as a group um, mm -hmm. to your crop to pollinate. So, I mean, it could lead to like better farming practices also because we're going to be forced to find other ways to pollinate the crops. It's a really big problem, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, how do we fix it? It's it's not so easy to, to fix right now because everything we eat is from commercial farms. So mm -hmm. uh, trying to like completely change that um, instantly, I don't think it's going to be uh, easy to do. But I'm also seeing a lot of small farmers, farmers who care about what they're growing and the environment and how they're treating the things around them. So I'm very hopeful for that too, you know, seeing all these, especially I'm connecting with a lot of like BIPOC farmers and it's so exciting to see the work that they're doing because they're like, first and foremost, it's like about the community and, you know, how they can serve the community and, you know, thinking about what the community wants to eat and 
you know, even providing a space for them to come and um, work on the land is very special, I think. What is the job of a beekeeper? It's actually very simple. It's um, a beekeeper keeps bees and tries to keep them alive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You'll get five beekeepers and each one does things differently. So I can't say like, Mm-hmm. A beekeeper does this or that. Um, everyone has their own duties, their own like methods and practices. But generally speaking, yeah. So it's somebody who like houses bees and maintains them and tries to keep them alive, basically. Um, for me, it means um, I'm a treatment-free beekeeper. There are beekeepers who use chemicals in their hives and there are beekeepers who don't and everything in between. So there are beekeepers who use like natural chemicals, um, But for me, I don't use any kind of treatment. And my thinking behind that is I want the strongest colonies to survive and I don't want them to rely on me for their survival. So after I'm long gone, they'll still be able to take care of themselves. So it's not necessarily like a lazy way of beekeeping because I still (laughs) do a lot around and, you know, provide a good environment for them. So that takes actually way more time than just spray like giving them a chemical to fight off these like mites or diseases so yeah for me it means being a farmer and being a good farmer um being a farmer to provide them a great environment so how many bees do you have um right now on our family farm i have 34 hives um and each one contains anywhere from 10,000 to 40,000 bees (laughs) <laughs> I'm so glad I asked. That is so many bees. That's so many more yeah. bees than I thought it would be. I'm yeah, so okay. right. yeah, it's like a bee, billionaire or something. Like <laughs> I So I'm an animal fanatic. And like, what are bees like? Do they recognize you versus if someone else came and tried to feed them? Like, what, what can you say about them as like an animal? I recently read an article that they can recognize you. Um, But I'm not sure exactly how that works because each bee has a lifespan of like two to three weeks. So like, I don't know if they collectively like share that information with each other or they're just constantly like seeing me and then like they just know who I am or my smell. Different like breeds of bees will have different tendencies. So some are more angry or not angry, but they're more defensive. Uh Um, So you have to be careful when you're close to the hive because they might trying to sting you, um, just defending their hive. And then some are more docile. So, you know, you can go right up to the entrance and they won't do anything. And sometimes you're able to like go in without any protective equipment and inspect the hive. But I tend to be more on the like cautious side where I'm like always expecting them to sting me. So I always (laughs) wear my hat, my gloves, pants. Yeah. So I don't want to be stung and I don't want to like find out that I'm allergic. So <laughs> I always am like super cautious. Yeah. Have you never, never been, been stung? stung? The, so the last time I was stung was in high school. So like when I was 15 or something. So it's been a really long time and that was like not even on our, on our farm. So yeah, they're not very aggressive. Um, and they usually warn you before stinging you. So they'll like bump into you or they'll, you'll hear like this, like high pitched buzzing, like flying around your head. And so that's usually a sign for you to back away. And they don't, because they know they're going to die when they sting you. So I'm sure they're, they want to like warn you first. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. So that is true. If one, if they sting you, they do die for all species of bees. 
Um, for all species, I'm not sure, but for honeybees, um, most of the time, yes. Sometimes in rare cases, they're able to pull their stinger out with them. So, but if they're not able to, like basically their like, guts are pulled out when their stinger <gasps> comes out. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So it's obviously very community-based, right? Sacrifice one for the many. Yeah, they're kind of like little cells of this like bigger organism. That's yeah. so fascinating. There's another really interesting component to what you do, and that's the CBD aspect. Um, yeah. And so uh, I, I I know this background, but can you tell a little bit of a background about how you how you started this company and why you're mixing uh, honey and CBD? I started researching um, CBD and cannabis when my dad got diagnosed with cancer. And so I was making products for him with like stress and um, also pain relief. So me and my family were doing a lot of like research around like natural remedies and like mm -hmm. things to help him like relieve pain basically. And so I didn't start doing that with the intention of like starting a company. I was mostly just doing it for him. And then eventually like friends and family started asking for it. Um, and at the time I had moved back home and like left my job. So I was like really lost and unsure of what I was doing with my life then too. So, um, I was like, oh, well maybe I could start selling this for some income, you know, cause I didn't, I had some savings, but not a lot. So, um, you know, and it was something that I was enjoying doing and I liked the idea of like helping other people with this medicine that I was making. So, um, it just kind of slowly turned into this business. And um, yeah, that's how I started making CBD <laughs> products. Yeah. But before that, I was always like really hesitant to try cannabis because in like the Latinx community, um, it's like really taboo. And like, you know, you're seen as like lazy or irresponsible if you're doing anything related to cannabis. So I think for me, it was like, you know, stepping into something that I was like, almost, I almost felt guilty doing it, you know, in, in some ways, you know, but on the other hand, I was trying to create something that would like help my community, community too, and like expose them to something natural or rephrase it as something natural. Can you sort of explain the difference between CBD and like smoking marijuana? It's all kind of under this cannabis umbrella, right? Um, but people usually refer to um, the non-psychoactive plant as hemp and the psychoactive plant as cannabis. And so what I use in my products is the hemp plant. And so usually that's um, used for things like stress relief, anxiety, sleeplessness, um, and pain relief. Mm -hmm. And then people usually associate the cannabis plant as you people like to get high off of, but it also has its medicinal properties. So yeah, I focus, um, all of my products use the, the hemp plant. So the more like medicinal uses, I guess. Are you growing the hemp at, at the farm as well? Um, no, not right now. Um, there are a lot of like legal things around mm -hmm. that. We're not, um, incorporated into the city. So we're technically Merced County and it's illegal to do that mm -hmm. in Merced County right now. Um, so you can't even get permits to grow or manufacture here on the farm. So how does that mix with honey? Like you just kind of mix it together and it's, and it's for stress relief and pain relief. Like it all kind of goes together. What I use is an extract and it's kind of like an, a really thick, dark oil. 
and it has an emulsifier in it, which allows it to like blend in with the honey. And what would you say to someone who's like not familiar with CBD, who, you know, maybe has some stigma around anything even remotely related to cannabis? So I typically tell people it's best to start low and to go slow. So start with the lowest dose that you can um, and gradually increase that. You want to take that dosage for like an, an entire week and then note how you feel after that. See if there are any changes. Um, and then you can decide whether you need more or not. And then the following week, you can either increase it by a little or double it and do that same dosage for an entire week. And then again, just keep doing that until you find your right dosage. Um, and the great thing about um, the hemp plant is that the like worst side effect that I've seen is that you get sleepy if you take too much, <laughs> but that's sometimes the effect that people want. So it's not uh, necessarily a bad thing. So there's bees, they're in a hive. How do you, how do you get the honey? How do you get the beeswax? How do you, how do you get all the things and what kind of things I know honey beeswax, but like, what kind of things can you get from the bees? Yeah. So inside the boxes, so th they're like rectangular boxes and inside there are these 10 wooden frames mm -hmm. that the bees build across uh, with comb, with honeycomb. So they basically construct this like hexagonal like comb across and that's where they store all their honey, all their pollen, all their eggs. Um, and so what I do when I'm harvesting honey is I take, um, I just pick those frames up and it's filled with honey and wax. And whenever they have an excess amount, um, I'm able to take some out. And then um, with the honey, we have this like, we have this metal centrifuge that we just place the frames in and it like spins all the honey out. So it goes really oh. fast and all the honey just flies out. And then I'm able to filter it after that. How much honey does like one beehive produce a week or? Yeah. So it depends on um, the time of the year. So usually the spring and the summer is when they get the most honey, depending on the size of the hive, it can be anywhere from like 10 pounds to 60 pounds per hive. Like each of those like wooden frames can weigh like 10 pounds sometimes. So honey is really heavy. It's like 1.5 times heavier than water. I'm embarrassed to ask this question, but why do bees make honey? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. I get this question a lot. Um, it's their source of food. So they're basically collecting as much as they can throughout the year um, to prepare for winter. Because in oh, okay. winter, there's not much... Uh, flowering outside so they have to have enough to survive winter until spring so yeah their only goal is to you know survive survive throughout the year and um, protect the queen and make sure they're able to reproduce in the spring and so they're taking pollen from flowers to make honey and then eat the honey right yeah and they usually make mm. like an huge excess of honey or they like they fill the space they have and so they'll just keep collecting and keep collecting that's all they're doing all day they're like people stockpiling for the apocalypse yeah right, yeah they're hoarders <laughs> and a bee's lifespan is two to three weeks you said so like in the spring and in the summer when they're working a lot the worker bee's lifespan is like two to three weeks um in the winter or if they're born later in the year like fall winter 
uh, they're not working as much. They're not flying outside as much. Um, so their lifespan is a few months. Mm. Yeah, and the queen can live like three to five years. I was going to say, uh, what's the deal with the queen? How does she get chosen? What's her deal? A lot of people think that the queen makes all these decisions, but it's a colony is more of like a democracy. So they all kind of decide, you know, if a queen isn't performing well, they, they choose one egg to create a new queen. So once they decide like which egg will be a queen or sometimes they make multiple of them, they'll just feed that egg royal jelly. And that's how a queen becomes a queen. Like it's not, yeah, it's kind of, it's. What is royal jelly? (laughs) So royal jelly is like basically their sweat. Yeah, so like secretions from their like body. And so this is what they feed to um, the eggs. Um, And so some eggs will only get this for a few days, but the chosen queen will get this more, more often than the other ones. So she becomes, um, yeah, the queen is born that way. Whoa, this is blowing my mind. So (laughs) who is giving birth to these eggs? Like, do they just all kind of give birth in the same area? And there's just like a collective, uh, like a collection of eggs from various sources? Only the queen lays the eggs. After she is born, she goes on a mating flight. um, And so she leaves the, the hive and she mates with a few drone bees or the male bees. Um, and that's the only time she um, is inseminated. And then for the rest of her life, she just lays eggs until she can't anymore and she's replaced. And they're all fertilized eggs just from that one trip? Uh, yeah, so the fertilized ones are the female uh, bees and then the unfertilized ones are the male ones. Whoa. And so then a new queen is born. They choose a new queen. And if and it's a democracy. So if they don't like that queen, they vote her out. Right. Yeah. They'll either <sighs> like kill her or kick her out. or. <laughs> but that's their mom, right? So the queen is everybody's mom biologically. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so why don't they have the issue of like, um, incest the way humans do you know because like if you keep having the same gene pool it's like problematic for other species why is it not for bees um so it's in that mating flight that they choose bees from other places okay Um, yeah yeah so that's how they're able to like prevent that from happening um i'm not sure how often they mate with related bees though that's a good question Yeah. This is incredible. This is amazing. Okay, walking me through this again. <laughs> how long how long is are they an egg for? I want to say a few weeks. I don't know the exact number um off the top of my head, but um it's not that long. Like they're able to like constantly replenish the like number of bees they have. Um and so a a queen lays like thousands of eggs like all the time. And so she's const- like all she does all day is lay eggs in the little cells. And so she's laying all these eggs. And then after a few weeks, or actually constantly they're being born um, because she's constantly laying these eggs. What makes a bad queen? Why would bees want to overthrow their queen? So if she's older, she usually can't lay as many eggs. So Mm. that's one time she'll be replaced. Um, That's usually the main reason she's replaced. Um, Yeah, it's basically her performance in infertility. (laughs) 
Oh, and then you spoke about this a little bit, but we all kind of know that expression hive mind, right? And so you were saying that they're individuals, but they're really kind of like one entity. Can you speak mm-hmm. to that a little bit more, especially if like you, they only have two to three week lifespan, but then they're they're I mean, they're hoarding food for their future generations then, mm-hmm. right? They're constantly communicating with each other, whether it's like where the food source is or how the queen is doing. So whether it's like they're communicating through dance or through smell, um, they're just constantly in communication with each other. And their main goal is survival. And so they're not like bickering with each other, trying to decide like, should we go to this food source or that food source? Um, It's all dependent on um, which one is going to make help our colony survive. And so um, when they're deciding on uh, what flower to forage on next, because they usually do it as a group, it all depends on how, how hard they're dancing. And so like uh, when they, when like a scout bee or a forager bee goes out to find a new food source, uh, she comes back with all this information and she dances to show where it is. And also um, based on the strength of her dance or how fast she's shaking the bees will know whether it's a good food source or not. Um, And so that's how they'll make their decisions too. So like, it's all just dependent on, you know, what's going to be better for our colony and where are we going to get the most food? Or if they're making a decision on um, where their new home will be, it's the same thing. These scout bees will go out and um, look for locations for their new home and then bring back that information through dance. And um, another scout bee will go check that new house out. And then, um, if that bee likes it too, it'll come back and then share that information. And it just kind of goes along that way until they all collectively decide what's the best location or what's the best food source. So do they know each other? Like, do they recognize each? Like, do they have friends? <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is an interesting thing for me because I, um, this year, my brother, or sorry, last year, um, my brother and I did this experiment with one of the hives, um, or with two of the hives, because one of them seemed to be, uh, weaker than the other one. And so my brother saw in some YouTube video that if we just switched the positions of those boxes, um, the bees would, um, basically switch homes, right? Because they're flying um, to that original place where they thought was their home and then making that their new home. I don't know if that, if yeah, you yeah, that. Yeah. Um, so they will recognize a queen through smell. Right. And so if a, if a new box appears in that like previous location, they'll recognize that as their new home and like start building in that colony. So it's kind of, it's kind of a hard question to like, answer because I guess they do so they do recognize like a queen pheromone but they don't necessarily like say like oh hey you're from the same same hive as me or right they'll start serving a different queen and not really notice right yeah exactly and sometimes (laughs) we combine hives with another hive um and they'll just accept that queen as their own so for them it's like survival like first and foremost so yeah it's like I guess they do, but also know like 
yeah, they just want to survive. You mentioned a couple different types, like the scout and like the male bee. What are the different roles within a beehive? There are the forager bees who go out and collect nectar, pollen, and water for the hive. There are the nurse bees who take care of the bee eggs. Um, there's the queen bee who lays all the eggs. Uh, there are the drone bees who are the male bees. They don't really do anything for the hive except um, their main role in their life is to inseminate queens. So other than that, they don't do much. I'm sure they have other purposes too, like maybe keeping the hive warm, but um, they're usually the first to go if there are a few resources. So if like a hive is running out of food, they'll kick all of the male bees out because all they're doing is like eating the food and like not working. Um, so, so yeah, so fair. that's fair. This all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Truly. <laughs> yeah um, and like sometimes you'll go out and see these, um, they're very noticeable because they're really big bees. Um, they're like these fat kind of bees. And sometimes I'll go out and you'll just see like a bunch of drones crawling on the ground that have been kicked out. And sometimes there are like piles of them just dead because they've been like kicked out. And yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really Oh my God. This yeah. is a harsh but fair society. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So I want to talk about beeswax. Um, how much beeswax can you get from a hive? And how do you get the beeswax? Um, it's not, you don't get much um, because when they build their comb, it's very thin. Um, and it takes a lot of energy for them to build it. So they try to use as little as possible. Uh, so you, you usually need like buckets, like five gallon bucket. Like I want to say like three five gallon buckets will give you maybe 10 to 15 pounds of beeswax. So it's mostly air that they're, um, in the hive. It's not a lot of beeswax. Why is it so satisfying to watch you <laughs> get the beeswax out of the thing? Yeah, I. It, so the way I do it is I, um, I mean, you've seen the videos, but I either scrape it if there's a plastic divider in the, mil in the middle um, or I just pop it out of the frame. Um, but after that, I put it in a canvas tote or some sort of cloth and then I boil it um, and all the like beeswax filters out and all of the debris stays in the bag or in the cloth. Is there anything that we have not asked about that you find to be particularly fascinating about bees? Because I'm very like adamant about treatment-free beekeeping. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to say that it's, for me at least, the best type of beekeeping you can do. And I'm actually um, starting a series of like videos to teach people about it um, just because it's like based on on science, I guess, you know, like the strongest colonies survive and that's how they're able to like live on without us. I don't like to think of my bees as pets. It's not something that I own, you know, it's something like they basically maintain themselves, you know? So, um, the idea behind treatment free beekeeping is just that, you know, you should provide them a good environment, but not interfere as much as you mm -hmm. think you should. That's probably true for parenting as well. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to play a game show? 
Yes, I would. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> this game show is called Hypotheticals. I wanted to make some sort of pun with bees, but couldn't. Um, <laughs> in this game show, you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to ask you a series of hypothetical situations. Uh, you can ask any clarifying questions you have, and then you tell me what you would do or your opinion about it. And our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your significant other of three years attends a Christmas theme party without you and finds themselves under the mistletoe with your best friend. Not wanting to be rude, they kiss your best friend. And when your best friend uses tongue, they use tongue back. The whole thing lasts for over a minute so as not to appear rude. Would you stay with this cheater? Another party goer uploaded the whole interaction to Instagram, so you had to watch it. Uh, I think this person is an alien and not just rude. <laughs> this is that's the wrong game. I, uh, what is the deal with my best friend? <laughs> what the fuck? Why wasn't I at the party? You um, were out of town on a book tour. Oh, I'm successful. <laughs> Jessica? I can't I can't think of any like possible explanation for that, like other than like Yeah, he's just a cheater and my best friend isn't really my best friend. Like <laughs> they like to put on a good show for the party. No, I'm curious as to like, okay, so I went out of town and they decided to meet up at this Christmas party. Well, because it's a group of friends. You're all in the same group. Uh Uh-huh. And then the person who uploaded it, not my friend either. Hate that that person. That was your sister. You know what? This kind of checks out for Cheyenne, to be honest. Uh, What the fuck? Okay, well, I would not stay with this cheater. And Jessica probably wouldn't either, right? Yeah, I don't think I would. Just because, like, it just seems so strange and... um, so kind of oddly familiar, which is like a little bit <laughs> triggering, but I'm like, all right, you know, this isn't real life. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we try so hard not to make hypotheticals triggering, and we always do. Oh, God. Okay, we're moving on to the next yes. one. I do hate to inform you, though, that that, that, that that significant other was the best kisser of your life, so you are losing something. Who cares? <laughs> and that's why your best friend really, they were just blown away by the technique. Okay. So, <laughs> our next game. Are you a terrible parent? Mm-hmm. Your child ate hates all vegetables, and you are worried about their nutrition. So one day, you make them a veggie smoothie with ice cream mixed in. Okay. You don't tell them about the veggies until after they drink it and like it. When you tell them they just drank a ton of veggies, they shout that you have betrayed them, and they make themselves throw it back up. Are you a terrible (laughs) parent? (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, my partner sneaks veggies and protein into a lot of my food uh like I am a child (laughs) um but I always I'm always like I finish it and then they go guess what was in there and what kind of food they pancakes they'll sneak veggies and and stuff into pancake batter or they'll like put they'll like they sneak I don't know they'll be like there was protein powder in there like they're sneaks you should then (laughs) scream you have betrayed me (laughs) um no I just go wow 
I'm too trusting. Uh, and I just accept food from you. But um, yeah, I think uh, I I want to know what type of child I raised that would have such a violent reaction to vegetables. Um, I think I'm a good parent and I think I should keep doing it and not tell them that there's veggies in it next time. Okay, so your answer is lie more. Yep. <laughs> Jessica? My so my family does this often too with like so my sister has a juice shop and she like constantly like adds like broccoli or like spinach or ginger or whatever else into the smoothies and so mm -hmm. like I've learned to not accept them anymore because I don't like <laughs> necessarily like them like here at the house um, but we also do this with like our nephews because they're not big fans of vegetables and um they're, they don't readily accept anything green. So, so yeah, I mean, I'd say I'm a good parent and I continue to do that. They never trust you again and they, they start making all their own food. <laughs> Honestly, that seems great because I don't want to have to cook. So I love that. I would love if my child made all their own food. <laughs> but are they making healthy food or are they just making themselves ice cream every day? Just chicken nuggets. That's not so bad. Pretty bad. Maybe. <laughs> I, I think um, uh, here's my thought as I'm not a parent, but to any parents out there, what if you just pretended broccoli was delicious? Like what if no, you did this thing? disgusting. No, no, no. But no. what if you ate it and then you told your kid you can't have any? You're not allowed mm -hmm. to have any because it's it's too good and you can't have it. And you tell them for like three weeks, like, no, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to have asparagus yeah, but or whatever. The minute they taste the broccoli, they'll go, this is disgusting. You liar. I, you have betrayed me. No, <laughs> I think you could trick them. I had a friend who who tricked his kids into thinking that yogurt was ice cream. So they'd be like, we want ice cream. And it was just yogurt. Interesting. <laughs> Parenting <That's> is <laughs> wild. <laughs> we should all just be more like the bees. Okay. <laughs> Our final game. Is this person an alien or just rude? Mm. You're working on your screenplay at a local coffee shop and ask the person sitting next to you to watch your computer while you go to the bathroom. When you get back, the person says they read your script and give you some handwritten notes they made. <laughs> Is this person an alien or just rude? The notes are actually very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that this person is um it's like David Fincher or someone. It's like, it's like George Lucas. Uh who uh what do you think, Jessica? I I think I'd have to say they're an alien um because I don't know many people who would go out of their way to read someone else's like script and give notes. <laughs> Well, honestly, this was an easy one because who can read that fast other than an alien? I thought literally, I was like, this is just some white guy. Like, this is, <laughs> there's nothing extraordinary about this at all. <laughs> Except that you were only gone for two minutes and they read the whole movie. Well, wait a minute. So I pee that fast? How I'm an alien. How long does it take you to pee? Well, you got you got to get it all out. You got to wash your hands. All right. Three minutes. Okay. <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. I feel like my entire world has expanded in a great way now that I know more about bees. Um, <laughs> where can people find out more about you and your company and buy your amazing products? 
Uh, so thank you for having me. And my website is happyorganics.co. I'm also on Instagram and TikTok now. Um, so they can follow me on there too. Yeah. TikTok, TikTok. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, and everyone, go buy some CBD infused honey and, and then smear it all over your body. Yeah, that's <laughs> what you do with it. <laughs> Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about cultural identity. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. XXXXXXX, baby. And guess who we have joining us? The one, <laughs> the only, our incredible producer, Melissa! Hi! Excited to be here a segment early. <laughs> yeah, you might know Melissa from every podcast ever. <laughs> Including this one. Including this one. Um, yes, you're a segment early. Because yes. we are going to be discussing cultural identity. And Allison said that... Um, she and I are both two white Jews. So mm -hmm. <laughs> we thought we'd have a different perspective join us. Add a little chocolate to the mix. Yeah, exactly. I took a class about um, counseling the culturally diverse and we ended, we had to write this paper about our own cultural identity. And like we had to pick like three identities that we strongly, you know, identify with. And so for me, I went with uh, I'm a woman. I'm Jewish, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And um, that I, oh my God, what was my third one? White. Oh, white. white. Yes. It was white. And so like, and it's really interesting because like, depending on what situation you're in, your main identifier kind of changes, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also just kind of like weird to think of yourself like broken up into these things, but it really mm -hmm. is like what forms you as a person. Mm -hmm. So off the top of your head, like what would you each pick as like your your top three, like most salient identities? Melissa, you go first. Uh, black woman. I don't know what the third one would be. Southern. Would you say that? Um, I mean, I was born in the South and I lived in the South a lot, but I moved around. Would you say American, maybe? Yeah, American. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Black woman American. <laughs> Gabby? <sighs> wow. Okay. Jewish, hugely. Uh and and um more religious than Allison. Relig I do the holidays and um I speak Hebrew and I have like the cultural identity of having grown up very Jewish. So Jewish is is a big one. And also in light of a lot of the anti-Semitism that's become more prevalent since 2016, I've actually identified as Jewish way, way, way more and felt it more importantly than than um, in the past. So the Judaism has been upped. Um, and then <laughs> what a tailspin I'm in right now about identifying as a woman. Uh, but so that doesn't need to be one of your most salient identities. I don't, I don't really identify with it. Is that that's bad? Fine. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand that the world sees me that way, but I don't, it's not like something that I'm like, I don't, I'm not like, it doesn't feel like a huge part of me. That's why it's <sighs> fun to do this exercise, right? Because it's like, how do I view myself? Yeah. Uh, I mean, queer. Okay. Queer is a huge, yeah. Queer is definitely a huge part of it. Um, and then I don't know, Floridian? 
just because I think I, I, you know, I've moved from New York City to Los Angeles. And I think like, there's a lot of conversation about coastal elites and like, you know, the, the, I don't know, I, especially like, with the election and, you know, all these Southern states turning blue and the effort to turn all of these states blue and how disappointed I was when Florida went red. Um, I don't know. What are some other examples? It could potentially even be like um, your socioeconomic status. So like if you like strongly identify as middle class, maybe that sure. could be one of your salient aspects. Um, sure. And I mean, culture is like so all encompassing. So it is like, it is like kind of like very unique to each individual person. Mm-hmm. Do you guys ever feel like, obviously for you, Gabby, like you probably feel like when you're in queer spaces, that is like maybe the your strongest identity when you're there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, specifically, I'll, I'll, I would go with bisexual. Like if I'm mm-hmm. in a, a specifically queer space, then I'm like, the B of LGBTQ. Um, more and more I go with queer, but uh, yeah, I, I do strongly sort of vocalize and identify with and and become in that space, like a representative of the B. Yeah. Melissa, do you feel like you ever like switch back and forth between what's like most prominent in your identity? Uh, yeah, I think so. Depending on where I am, um, mm-hmm especially like like code switching between if I'm with like the majority of white people or black people then yeah I definitely do switch between how I act or how I present myself or even just like sometimes even the way that I talk so yeah um and for me like I grew up uh even though I moved around a lot throughout my childhood um I lived in I think I always forget how many, but like six different states, but I was always one or two of the black people that were in my school. And so, um, so it was always, and one of them was usually my sister. So, um, (laughs) the other person, so, (laughs) so, uh, so it sound like it was someone else. Oh God. Usually my sister. Uh, so, um, it's always been, interesting just even like with family members too uh Mm -hmm. just switching in between even the way that I act or talk so Mm -hmm. do you find that exhausting it's easy like it's not even something I think about it just happens oh really Mm -hmm. what about like I, I you know I think sometimes with feminism right it's like it's like there's this thing of like we're all women but then when you break it down obviously there are different concerns and issues affecting white women black women asian women etc um so does that like when you're in like spaces that are like this is an all-women space are you like hyper aware that you're like well i'm a woman but i also i that's what i imagine it's like yeah um not when i was younger not so much until other people started pointing it out that's when Mm. it became the difference because I I was just like I'm a woman or I'm a girl or I'm a Mm -hmm. even just like a person in the space and then that and then it would become for example I was in in high school I remember I was in English class I think it was like AP lit or something and my teacher we were talking about I think it was Maya Angelou we're talking about maybe why the cage bird sings or something and 
she just like out of nowhere, she was like, so Melissa, what's it like being at a black church? And I was like, first of all, you don't even know where I go to church. Yeah. If you go to church. Yeah. If I go to church. And it was just like other people othering me or even like one time Mm -hmm. I was in a science class and my teacher just like instead of taking me to the side she was like hey Melissa I found this program for gifted black students do you want me to submit you and I was just like why why are you pointing fingers it just it's when other people point it out yeah yeah I think a lot of women's spaces too are a little bit um they're not hyper aware of the differences and stuff. So I, I, I get it. I imagine I get like a thing of like, we're all women here or something, but Mm -hmm. like as a queer person, sometimes I feel like a little bit like you, you're not, you don't mean me. Like you're not catering to me right now. One of my group projects was focused on the LGBTQ black community. And it was interesting to find out that like, um, the larger LGBTQ community has so many race issues within it uh-huh. and like is very like kind of racist, but nope. views themselves as being extremely progressive <laughs> and, and therefore won't acknowledge their own issues and instead views like black communities as being very backwards. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Even though Huge. they're they have all these own problems within their own community where Absolutely. it's like so white centric. It happens with um white queers and uh and Islamic queers and and Arabic queers and and Muslim queers. It's like a huge thing. Um, because they, we act like we're so progressive and we're like, you, you can't be in these countries that like kill gay people, but it's like so much more complicated than that. And like these, these, uh, at least in the ones that I've spoken to, they still have like, obviously a loving connection to their, their home countries. Um, but we try to like, push back on them and be like, well, your identity as a queer person is more important and you're not showing solidarity with the LGBTQ community by like going to visit your family members in Iran or whatever. And it's like, oh, you white person can shut the fuck up. Right. <laughs> also, like white gay men are are still men and they're still white. <laughs> That's a perfect example of like how their cultural identity is so complex, right? Mm-hmm. Because one aspect of their identity is marginalized. Yes. But then two other aspects are incredibly privileged. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I'm I'm white. I'm still mm-hmm. white. Like I, I get very uncomfortable sometimes when white queer people pre- present themselves as if they can't be racist. Right. And, yeah. and it happens a lot. Well, everyone is capable of being racist. Everyone mm-hmm. is like it's you would have had to grow up with such a different experience than 99.9 percent of people to mm-hmm. not have been conditioned to think that way at least occasionally you know or at yeah. least in your early years or in the past or you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's it's just how society is set up which is one of the big problems it's yeah. also dependent on what people see when they look at you first so like for you allison they might be like oh a lady you know and for Melissa, they might first, who knows, they might first be like a black person, you know, like it's mm-hmm. interesting in different situations to think about like how the people around you are seeing you first and foremost. Just like another example, but opposite. I have a friend that's a person of color, but she's not black and her parents are immigrants. And a lot of times she'll explain things as being like white people stuff and it's not. And I'm like, 
that's more like American. Like, for example, she was talking like about like weddings and just like church and things. It was just like specific things. And I was like, you're not talking about white people things. I think you're specifying American things. And by doing that, you're negating black people or any other Mm -hmm. American out of the conversation. And what you're Mm -hmm. doing is that you're taking us out and defaulting as white. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Viewing America as white. Yes. It's interesting sometimes when people can read that you and I are Jewish just from like our looks. (laughs) Also, that's interesting thing, you know, because I've had so much pushback whenever I say that I'm white on Twitter because people will come at me and say, you're not white, you're Jewish. In their brain, Jews are not white, but like it's two completely different things. And there's different ethnicities within right people being yes. Jewish too. There are black Jews, yes. there are Hispanic Jews, there are, yeah, it's, there's a bunch of different like races within Jews, but mm-hmm. then Jew, Judaism, but then being Jewish is also an ethnicity. Exactly. And so it's, it's so confusing. Yeah. It's its own like weird thing. And it's also just so interesting to have people tell you that, that, that you're not something that you know that you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like well, I identify as white. I am white. And then to have all of these anti-Semites come at me being like, you're not white. Yes. So it's conditional whiteness, which um, at a certain point, the Irish enjoyed as well, uh, which is that you are white until they need to start discriminating. Mm-hmm. And then you're or Jewish. you're not white until it, it could be. Yeah. And the so, opposite. Yeah. Wait, sorry. What would be the opposite? Irish people were mm-hmm. considered not white until white people like they were indentured. Like at one point in America, mm-hmm. they were indentured slaves. And then white people saw that like. There was a rebellion where um, black and Irish enslaved people Mm. were fighting. And then uh, like European settlers, like, hold on, we need to pull the Irish over on our side. So everything doesn't get uh, overturned Mm -hmm. and they gave them the same privilege. Yeah, right. Right. So whatever is to their benefit is Mm -hmm. who you are in that moment. That's what I'm saying. And that happens for Jews, too. Mm -hmm. It's it's whatever benefits people, you know, you're white or you're not white. And um, that's what's scary is that they can kind of revoke your your, like whatever at any time, Mm -hmm. what regardless of how you see yourself. And it, it, it goes, I mean, it's, it goes back to Hitler. It goes back to like the Roman times. Like it goes back to whenever like Jews were living in a specific place. And then all of a sudden, like all of our stories are like the Jews lived in this place. And then the Roman government decided they were not white. You know what I mean? Like it's like every story, just like all of a sudden some dictator or leader is like, wait a minute. And then we got to fight all over again. It's interesting to have whiteness as like one of my main identities because I feel like shame around like, you know, like I don't feel like great about being white. Like I know that it's like given me incredible privilege, but like I feel guilty for that privilege in a lot of ways. And so it's like this it's this interesting thing where it's like I I know that that is so how I am viewed in the world. 
So therefore it is like a salient identity of mine, but it's not like an identity that I like find any pride in, if that yeah. makes sense. As opposed to like queer Jew, which I'm like, woo. Um, I'm like, you know, I'm very, I find a lot of pride in being a woman. And I'm like, I love that. I like nurture that relationship with myself. And like, you know, um, we don't have a culture as white people though. Like what's our culture? Friends? What's, mm, our, what's our like, culture? Racism, um, yeah, exactly. oppression. <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, there's nothing to celebrate because there's no culture. <laughs> like, uh, what do we, we're like, oh, I, I would love to like put, you know, like mayonnaise on bread and go watch like Gilmore Girls. Like, what's our culture? Like, <laughs> privilege. Yeah. Exactly. So like, yeah. but with Judaism, there's a language, there's food, there's, you know, stuff. Mm-hmm. And then with queerness, you know, there's a culture like Stonewall and like, you know, history and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> like people, it's like we showed up, we enslaved some people, may, everything was worse. Here we go. <laughs> What's like, I nothing, feel like there's uh, nothing good. There's no such thing as white culture. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's just <laughs> annoying. Yeah. And people that don't get like why black people say that they have black culture, it's it infuriates me. It was like because we were taken from where mm-hmm. our homes are, we don't know where we're actually from. So therefore, mm-hmm. we had to create our own culture once we were here in America. There's been some discussion about the term African-American, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of black people aren't necessarily like from Africa. Do you like what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like people should just say black now instead of African-American? I think it's, it depends on the person and mm-hmm. you have to ask them and you need and you shouldn't just assume. Um, I think uh, maybe saying black to start. But this is again, this is my personal and mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for everyone. And I think like saying black as just like a base and then maybe they correct you. But for me, I prefer to be called black. Mm hmm. And it has nothing to take away from, like, my African heritage, but uh, I I think that it encompasses that as it speaks and it doesn't need to be specified. Well, because also it's not like I'm like, I'm a white American, you know right. what I mean? Like, you've, they've you, so many people have been here for centuries and, mm-hmm. you know, why is there still that qualifier? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't say... Uh, French American or right. Belgian right. American terms change. I mean, at one point it was colored. Sometimes it was Negro. Like they change and evolve. So, just ask. Should we move to ratings, Melissa? You're already here. Let's rate this thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did we think of this episode? What rating would we give it? I'm gonna give it a uh, 39 out of 30. Bzzz. Yes! <laughs> I love a good bzz. I was gonna say I give it a B plus. <laughs> That's great too. Oh my gosh. I don't Allison, think we you gotta can top. top that. Oh no, no. Um I think it was the bee's knees. <laughs> oh my god. I don't know where we could go from there. I feel like let's just wrap this thing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jessica Gonzalez, for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. 
And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Monts. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. Check out video clips of our podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or youtube.com slash show. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. And follow the JBU Podcast on Instagram at JBU Podcast. Forever!